please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who retests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, Brother Huey. It's indeed a pleasure to be here again with you in our Bible Presbyterian Church in Olympia, up north in Tacoma. Uh, they're meeting also, and uh, it's nice to look out and see a different set of faces than usual. And uh, since you're farther south, it's more warm and sunny and, <laughs> and <laughs> welcoming in some ways. <laughs> but I do appreciate the chance to fill in for Pastor T2. I understand from our Sunday school lesson this morning that he is vacationing by the beach, and he could have picked a better weekend for it. But uh, I'm sure it's a wonderful opportunity for him to, and his family to enjoy. I'm looking forward to beginning teaching at our new building at the seminary in just a week or so. It's very exciting. And I want to thank you all for your prayers and for all the work and support you've given to make this possible. And uh, I was up there in my office just looking around thinking, wow, this is great. I actually have a window I can see out of, and it's just uh, such a blessing to prepare there in that new building. Uh, This morning, I'd like to uh, speak to you from the passage that was read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I've been able, from time to time, as I've come down here and preached, to preach through chapter 1 of this book. And as we get into chapter 2, we have a new section 
that deals with how Paul conducted his ministry when he was with them in the city of Thessalonica, starting the church there. The apostle came under attack after he had left the city. Uh, Actually, he was under attack while he was in the city. But after he left, some people criticized him because he wasn't there anymore. And in this chapter, Paul defends himself and what he has done, and he also defends the ministry that he had when he was there with them. And he gives credit to God for all the blessings that they have had, including their conversion and, and their Christian life and testimony. As we read through this section of chapter 2, we see five different characteristics of Paul that made him a good and effective witness for the Lord Jesus. And this morning, what I'd like to do is cover the first two of those. And then if I ever come back and continue, uh, after you've all forgotten what I've said, I'll be able to (laughs) repeat again. But... uh, (laughs) Uh, when I come back, Lord willing, in the future sometime, uh, we'll continue with the other three. But the first two things that Paul mentions as far as how God blessed his ministry uh, are, first of all, the boldness that he had in speaking the gospel to the people. And then secondly, the sincerity that he had as a motive for what he did. Now, to be an effective witness for the Lord Jesus, we need to have, first of all, the gospel ourselves, don't we? And here in verse 2, he mentions the fact that, God, that he spoke to them the gospel of God in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2. The gospel of God. And he uses that phrase, the gospel of God, meaning the good news that comes from God. And as Paul expresses that gospel throughout his ministry and throughout his books, we know that it centers on what Jesus did, that Jesus came as the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins as the scripture had predicted and that he died, truly died and was buried and then he rose again from the dead on the third day. And this is the central gospel message that Paul delivered to all the churches, everywhere he went. And he calls it here the gospel of God. And he said, I delivered this message to you. And you had not heard it before, but God used me to bring you that message. And it had an effect. We notice in this passage how Paul talks about the effect of that gospel message. Uh, This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about how to change the world. And do you go out to change the world? Or do you go out to preach the gospel? And it was mentioned that those Christian missionaries and gospel preachers that have gone out preaching the gospel actually had a greater impact on the secular world than those who set out simply to change the secular world to start with. Because the change that is produced in the heart of the human a sinner makes that into a new person. And that spreads the influence out. I watched an interesting video the other day where this fellow was testing if you could hide behind snowbanks and be protected from bullets being shot at you. And uh, you know, that's an interesting question. Of course, he lives up in Canada. And up there you have these 
these uh, mounds of snow, you know, that the wind forms and everything. And he says, if you could duck down behind one of those and people are shooting at you, would it provide any protection? So he had this series of blocks of snow that he had put up on tables with cardboard in between the blocks. And then he'd shoot it through one end to see how far, you know, the, the cardboard would have holes in it, basically. So the 22 started off with a mag, 22 Magnum. It got through about a foot and a half of snow. And then uh, he tried a 556. He said, this is going to go a lot farther. And it didn't. It only went like two feet. So that surprised him. And then he tried a 12-gauge slug. That thing went about seven feet through the snow. Then he tried the shotgun, you know, with a... a, Anyway, I don't know why I'm telling you all this detail. (laughs) It was kind of fun to watch anyway, because every time he'd shoot, you know, the snow would, you know, kind of fly out a little bit. But then the one thing I wanted to mention was, when he shot the slug, he noticed something, that when it passed through the snow, the snow would go like that and kind of fall apart. It made an impression on the snow. The other bullets didn't make much of an impression, but that one did. And uh, now, is there a sermon illustration there? (laughs) I think so. I guess we could say, Paul said, when I gave you the gospel of God, it was like that slug. It did things. It had an impact. You could see the channel that was formed by that slug, you might say. And that's the effectiveness of the gospel. The gospel has an impact that other things just don't. So when Paul talks about the effect of his witness, we notice that here in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. You can look and see that when we came to you in Thessalonica, we did not come in vain. Like the old saying, in vain for nothing. We didn't come in vain. It had an effect. It had a result. You could see the difference after we were there. Now, in the book of Acts, it talks about Paul's visit to this city. He was there only for three Sabbath days, reasoning in the synagogue. And then he was forced to leave the city because the Jewish leaders that resisted the gospel hired these, King James calls them, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. (laughs) And uh, uh, men of the marketplace, uh, they were hired like a mob, and they attacked the Christians. They attacked the house Paul was staying at. And as a result of this turmoil, the Christians, the, the new Christians that were just converted, they told Paul he'd better leave the city. And so Paul left to another place. Seems like everywhere Paul went, he had to leave under a cloud of opposition. He had already just left Philippi just before that. He had been beaten and thrown in in the jail overnight. So here he is kicked out by this mob. And now Paul's writing to this church from the southern part of Greece, and he says, you remember when I was there, just a small period of time, that it was not in vain. You can tell a difference. For example, go back to verse 9 of chapter 1, where he says, They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. People are telling us what happened when we came into your city, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
Before we came there, you were in the pagan temple worshiping the idols. After we left, you're not in those pagan temples anymore. And you're not just staying home watching television. Instead of going there, you are gathering together and worshiping the true God, the true and living God. That's an impact. It made a difference when Paul was there. It was an effective witness. It was not in vain. So the question we might have then is why? Why was it so effective? Now we know that all of these things are in the care of God, in the sovereignty of God. He is the one that produces conversion in the heart. He is the one that encourages and causes us to to believe and follow Christ and to change our way of life. But humanly speaking, he uses us in that process. He uses ministers, witnesses, teachers, other family members, friends. He uses us to bring others to Christ and to help them to grow in Christ. And in the case of Paul, God used Paul in a mighty way. And this passage points out these two different characteristics of Paul's ministry. And these are found in verses 1 through 4 of this chapter. And then the others are found in the subsequent verses. But here, let's look, first of all, at verse 2. And here we see Paul's boldness, or you might say, his fearlessness. You know, when you say someone is fearless, it might mean two different things. It might mean that truly this person has no idea of the dangers that he's facing, and therefore he's fearless. Sort of like my little brother when I was a boy, he was out in the middle of the highway uh, toddling around and uh, uh, cars screeching to halt, honking their horns, you know, and he's just walking around in the middle of the highway. Uh, Fearless. Of course, he was fearless because he was, what's the word? I was going to say a a bad word like stupid or something, but uh, that was my opinion of him as my little brother. But... uh, We had, of course, run out and rescue him. He had no idea of the danger he was in. And that's a a certain type of fearlessness where you just walk in, like they say, where angels fear to tread, you know. Uh, But that's not the kind of fearlessness we're talking about here. The apostle had a good idea of the dangers that faced him. He had already suffered a lot. In Philippi, he'd been beaten. A matter of fact, if you go to 2 Corinthians, there's a passage there where Paul lists how many times he was whipped, beaten, thrown into prison. And all of those occasions, most of them are not mentioned in the book of Acts. Most of them happened early before all this happened here. Paul had already suffered many times physical abuse, punishment for his ministry, for his preaching. So he had a good idea what could very well happen to him there in Thessalonica. He was not ignorant of the danger, but he did it anyway. It's not a sin to be afraid. The sin comes when that fear controls your action. Think of our Lord Jesus before he faced the cross. There are several passages in the Gospels where Jesus talks about his anxiety as he looks ahead to what he will face, and how reluctant he was to do it, as uh, evidenced by his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup from me, if it's your will. So there is legitimate 
human fear of what lay ahead of him, but Jesus did not allow that fear to turn him from his duty. He went ahead, and God gave him strength. It says God sent the angel to minister to him and gave him strength to proceed. And from that point on, his face was set, and he carried out that great and terrible mission in our behalf. Paul was fearless as in that sense, as he faced the dangers in teaching and preaching the gospel. So we see here in verse 2, he says, Even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, they knew all about what happened to him. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. We were bold in our God. Boldness. You know, Paul had to constantly face these dangers. It's interesting, many years later, when he wrote the book of Ephesians, well, not many years, just a few years later, when he wrote the book of Ephesians, he concluded that book. He says, pray for me that boldness may be given to me, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Here he was in prison, facing trial for his faith in Rome. And he's still praying and asking them to pray for boldness. Have you ever been talking to someone and you thought, this is a good chance to give a witness to Christ, but I don't really want to bring up religion in this conversation at this time? I've often had that feeling. It's easy to talk about other things, but to bring in the gospel, to bring in something from Scripture, that requires an act of courage. Sometimes you think you're afraid, well, I don't know what I'll say, or I don't know how I'll answer the questions, or I don't know enough Bible verses to give the right answers if they start you know, arguing with me about this or that. Well, you'll never learn if you don't start, right? And the best thing to do is just to put it out there. Say, you know, let them know you're a Christian. Let them know you believe that Jesus is your Savior. And uh, you may not be able to say much after that, but at least you've started. And then you'll think about it later. You've probably had that experience, right? You know, just the perfect answer the next day. And, uh, well... You know what the Lord's going to do? He'll probably give you another chance, and you'll remember that answer, and then, then you'll be on step two and uh, get more comfortable and more effective in your witness. But you have to start. You have to put it out there. You have to let them know what you believe. That takes boldness. When I was in junior high school, I went to public school. My parents were not believers, and I uh, went to public school in California, a large school. And when I was in the eighth grade, I got in this group of guys and and uh, godly, un- not godly, ungodly, uh, just you know, not a, not a good group. And I knew it was wrong. I knew I was a you know, I was I was I had gone to Lutheran church before, or Lutheran school, and I had this idea: well, the Bible was right and everything, and I really shouldn't be doing all these things. And 
And I, but I didn't know how to break free to, to bring in, you know, make a change there. I finally decided, well, I'm going to take my Bible to school. And I just did that. And I put my Bible with my other books and just carried them around. And then at lunchtime, I'd read, you know, a chapter or something. That's all I did. But boy, that made a change in that, you know, my friends right off. And uh, that was the beginning of a real change in my life. But that took a lot of courage just to put the Bible there. I didn't say anything just to put the Bible there. And sometimes you start off, you have to just make that plunge, jumping in the water. There's a guy I like to watch sometimes on YouTube. He lives in Norway. And he said if he gets a half million followers, he's going to cut a hole in the ice and jump in the fjord. And then as he got up to 465,000, he said, I wish I hadn't made that promise. (laughs) And uh, he actually did it. He actually got to 500,000, and there's a video of him running out on the ice and then jumping in and whoop, you can hear him whooping, like, you know, 100 feet away, and then uh, running out again. But... uh, why did I bring that up? I don't remember. But uh, I guess the idea of taking the plunge. You, you, you just have to do it, you know. And uh, once you've done it, it gets easier. But Paul had that boldness to speak the gospel. And you notice that he spoke it in spite of what he had suffered before and knowing what might happen to him. And in spite of the actual opposition that he had at the time, as it says there in verse 2, it says, we spoke to you the gospel of God in much conflict. And uh, the word agony there in the Greek, uh, in struggle. Even as I was preaching the gospel, there were enemies fighting against me. It wasn't just like everybody listening, oh, this is wonderful. Uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful to preach the gospel to you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, it's something else to preach it to the Democratic National Convention. You know, uh, you might get a different response in those two places. Republicans aren't much different, but uh, uh, in the world at large, you have opposition, and uh, uh, yet to keep going, that requires courage. That requires boldness. I remember reading about. George Whitfield preaching, he, he preached quite a bit in America in the first Great Awakening, but he also preached in England, and occasionally when he preached in England, they'd actually be throwing rocks at him while he was trying to deliver his sermon. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, I'm glad you don't do that here. Uh, be hard, but to stay up there and to keep preaching, that's what Paul was doing, boldness. You know, it's, there's a wonderful... Wonderful passage in Acts chapter 4. It says that the apostles were preaching in the temple, John and Peter, and they were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin and beaten and warned never to, again to preach in the name of Jesus. And then they were released. And they went back to meet with the Christian brothers. And here they were. And getting beaten is not a comfortable thing. You know, bruised. Bleeding, perhaps. Uh, And it says they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Worthy to suffer shame. And then 
after they reported to the brothers what had happened, the brothers prayed. And you read that prayer in Acts 4, and they say, Lord, send your spirit and send to your servants boldness, that without fear they might preach your word. It's the strength of God that gives us that boldness. As he says here, we were bold, and notice those little words in there, we were bold in our God to speak. God is the one who gives that boldness of heart. So I pray that I'll have that boldness more, and uh, that you will too, that we won't be ashamed to speak up for our faith and for what Christ has done. Another thing Paul points out in this passage is his motive, his sincerity. In verse 3 and 4, he says, Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul says, we had a reason why we came to you. And it was not an unworthy motive. It wasn't something that we could get for ourselves that brought us to you there in Thessalonica. And he mentions three different possible bad motives, error, uncleanness, and deceit. It wasn't error, the first one. That's where we get our word planet, uh, deceit or, or error. It's being led astray. And, you know, the planets, you look up in the stars at night, and they're always in the same place, right? Except the five planets that we can see aren't. Mercury moves around, Venus moves around, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, they move around in the sky. So you might see them over here one night, and they might be over here a different night. You can't count on them. And that's where you get the word deceit, or well, translated here, deceit, planet. The word planet comes from that word, and that's the word he uses here. It's like you're looking for guidance, but the, the guidance you're looking at is in the wrong place. And there are a lot of people that are simply misled. They sincerely, truly believe bad things, and they preach those things and spread false teaching by their own sincere efforts. It's always kind of tragic when you see Mormon missionaries uh, who are so dedicated and sacrifice so much uh, for what they believe and take two years out of their life and, and dress up, you know, and go and do things that most people would not want to ever be caught dead doing. But they do it because they believe, but they believe something that is wrong. We believe it's wrong. It's not scriptural. And Paul says, I didn't come to you following error, following something like that. I wasn't tricked into coming to you. I knew the truth when I came to you. And the second thing he notices here, or mentions, is uncleanness. Not of uncleanness. There are some teachers that have a desire for sin, and they use the preaching or the ministry or some sort of influence they can get to fulfill that evil desire. And we know many cases of 
of people in the church who have abused uh, others because they can use that position they have of influence to exercise their lusts. Uh, Some have made a lot of money uh, bilking gullible people using religious language. Uh, All kinds of unclean motives. Paul says here that we weren't like that. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, which is just a couple pages back here, he mentions an example of this type of person in uh, Philippians 3.18. He says, Many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And many people have this type of motive. Paul says that was not what brought us to Thessalonica. We were not trying to take advantage of you or to somehow use you to gratify our own sinful desires. And then the third bad motive he mentions is deceit. Deceit, where we deliberately deceive you. We know what we're saying is false, but we want you to follow us. And so we teach you that false thing as though it were true. That same word is found, deceit is found in Acts 13, when the Apostle Paul was giving the gospel to Sergius Paulus on the island of Cyprus, it says that there was this man, Elymas the sorcerer, who was withstanding that and arguing against the gospel. And Paul, remember, struck by God's power, struck him blind. And Sergius Paulus then became a believer in the Lord. But when Paul addressed Elymas the sorcerer, he said, you are full of deceit. And that's the same word he uses here. You are trying to get people to follow you by telling them lies, and you know that you're lying to them. Kind of reminds you of political science today, doesn't it? Uh, They know what they're saying isn't true, but they say it so they can get followers. So Paul said, when we came to you, We were not motivated in that way. Rather, we were sincere. We see in verse 4, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Our motives are sincere. We did not come to you to please men. Man-pleasers, right? And, uh, you know, in Second Timothy, Paul talks about these congregations that have itching ears, and they get preachers that preach so that their ears are, are scratched, <laughs> that uh, the, they, they hear things that they like, and they get preachers that tell them things they like. Paul says, we didn't have that type of ministry. We are not here to please men, but God. We want to please God. And God is the one who tests us and who will reward us. We notice here in verse 4, he says, God has approved us. We have been approved 
by God. The word there, approved, is the idea of testing to see if it's genuine. And uh, for you Greek scholars out there, this is a perfect passive. God has tested us, and now we have the certificate. We're approved. We are certified. God has tested us, and he has approved us, and he has given us this ministry. And then at the end of the verse, but God who tests our hearts, that's a present tense, is still going on. This test is still going on. Remember once I got my hair cut when I was a boy? I got cut since then, too. But when I was a boy, I got my hair cut, and the barber was telling me that he had to have all these tests before he could be a barber. But then they had to keep testing him. I guess that was way back. I don't know if they still do that or not. But uh, once, once you're tested, that's not the end of it. You get tests on a regular basis afterward. And that's what God was doing with Paul. Because, you know, sometimes if God doesn't do that, we might just sort of rest on our laurels and uh, become lazy and uh, fall into uh, the desire to be men pleasers. But God sends other little tests along the way to keep us on the right track. And God is still testing us even today as Paul writes this letter. So God has approved him. And he's approved him, and he continues to approve him to be the bearer of the gospel. He says, Proved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And the gospel that Paul preached was given to him by God, and entrust, Paul was entrusted. That means that God said, okay, this is now yours. You have the authority to preach this gospel. It's my gospel, God says, but now it's your gospel. So Paul actually uses that expression sometimes. He'll say, my gospel. But when he says my gospel, it's the same as the gospel of God. In other words, God has given that gospel to me. He's entrusted it to me. I am now the caretaker of this message, which I am giving to you. That's the responsibility that God gives to us. And each of us, as believers in the Lord Jesus, have received that same gospel as a trust to give the gospel of God. So may he help us. Help us to be sincere, to be wanting to tell others because we have been given that message by God, not for our own advantage, our own comfort, but to glorify and obey our God. Why am I a witness? Because God has saved me and sent me forth and given me that message. Why am I not a witness? Maybe because I'm afraid. And I need the boldness that God gives. So may God give us boldness and a sincere heart to take his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to be bearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be bold, not to be overcome by fear or timidity or a false consideration for the feelings of others, but rather to be obedient and cheerful and joyous bearers of the great gospel of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would also give us a sincere heart, a desire to serve you, to to obey you, and to see others come to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.